Book Three, Chapter Thirty Nine of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bostonians by Henry James. Chapter Thirty Nine. He met Dr. Prance in the village the next morning, and as soon as he looked at her, he saw that the event which had been impending at Miss Chancellor's had taken place. It was not that her aspect was funereal, but it contained, somehow, an announcement that she had, for the present, no more thought to give to casting a line. Miss Bird's eye had quietly passed away, in the evening, an hour or two after Ransom's visit. They had wheeled her chair into the house. There had been nothing to do but wait for complete extinction. Miss Chancellor and Miss Tarrant had sat by her there, without moving, each of her hands in theirs, and she had just melted away, towards eight o'clock. It was a lovely death. Dr. Prance intimated that she had never seen any that she thought more seasonable. She added that she was a good woman, one of the old sort, and that was the only funeral oration that Basil Ransom was destined to hear pronounced upon Miss Birdseye. The impression of the simplicity and humility of her end remained with him, and he reflected more than once, during the days that followed, that the absence of pomp and circumstance which had marked her career marked also the consecration of her memory. She had been almost celebrated, she had been active, earnest, ubiquitous beyond anyone else. She had given herself utterly to charities and creeds and causes, and yet the only persons, apparently, to whom her death made a real difference, were three young women in a small frame-house on Cape Cod. Ransom learned from Dr. Prance that her mortal remains were to be committed to their rest in the little cemetery at Marmion, in sight of the pretty sea-view she loved to gaze at among old mossy headstones of mariners and fisher-folk. She had seen the place when she first came down, when she was able to drive out a little, and she had said she thought it must be pleasant to lie there. It was not an injunction, a definite request. It had not occurred to Miss Birdseye, at the end of her days, to take an exacting line or to make, for the first time in eighty years, a personal claim. But Olive Chancellor and Verena, had put their construction on her appreciation of the quietest corner of the striving, suffering world so weary a pilgrim of philanthropy had ever beheld. In the course of the day Ransom received a note of five lines from Verena, the purport of which was to tell him that he must not expect to see her again for the present. She wished to be very quiet and think things over. She added the recommendation that he should leave the neighborhood for three or four days. There are plenty of strange old places to see in that part of the country. Ransom meditated deeply on this missive, and perceived that he should be guilty of very bad taste in not immediately absenting himself. He knew that to Olive Chancellor's vision his conduct already wore that stain, and it was useless, therefore, for him to consider how he could displease her either less or more. But he wished to convey to Verena the impression that he would do anything in the wide world to gratify her, except give her up, and as he packed his valise he had an idea that he was both behaving beautifully and showing the finest diplomatic sense. To go away proved to himself how secure he felt, what a conviction he had that however she might turn and twist in his grasp he held her fast. 
the emotion she had expressed as he stood there before poor Miss Birdseye was only one of her instinctive contortions. He had taken due note of that, said to himself that a good many more would probably occur before she would be quiet. A woman that listens is lost, the old proverb says, and what had Verena done for the last three weeks but listen? Not very long each day, but with a degree of attention which her not withdrawing from Marmion was the measure. She had not told him that Olive wanted to whisk her away, but he had not needed this confidence to know that if she stayed on the field it was because she preferred to. She probably had an idea she was fighting, but if she should fight no harder than she had fought up to now, he should continue to take the same view of his success. She meant her request that he should go away for a few days as something combative, but decidedly he scarcely felt the blow. He liked to think that he had great tact with women, and he was sure Verena would be struck with this quality in reading, in the note he presently addressed her in reply to her own, that he had determined to take a little run to Provincetown. As there was no one under the rather ineffectual roof which sheltered him to whose hand he could entrust the billet, at the Marmion Hotel one had to be one's own messenger. He walked to the village post-office to request that his note should be put into Miss Chancellor's box. Here he met Dr. Prance, for a second time that day. She had come to deposit the letters by which Olive notified a few of Miss Birdseye's friends of the time and place of her obsequies. This young lady was shut up with Verena, and Dr. Prance was transacting all their business for them. Ransom felt that he made no admission that would impugn his estimate of the sex to which she in a manner belonged, in reflecting that she would acquit herself of these delegated duties with the greatest rapidity and accuracy. He told her he was going to absent himself for a few days, and expressed a friendly hope that he should find her at Marmion on his return. Her keen eye gauged him a moment to see if he were joking, then she said, well, I presume you think I can do as I like, but I can't. You mean you have got to go back to work? Well, yes, my place is empty in the city. So is every other place. You had better remain till the end of the season. It's all one season to me. I want to see my office late. I wouldn't have stayed so long for anyone but her. Well, then, good-bye, Ransom said. I shall always remember our little expeditions and I wish you every professional distinction. That's why I want to go back, Dr. Prance replied, with her flat, limited manner. He kept her a moment. He wanted to ask her about Verena. While he was hesitating how to form his question, she remarked, evidently wishing to leave him a little memento of her sympathy. Well, I hope you will be able to follow up your views. My views, Miss Prance? I'm sure I have never mentioned them to you. Then Ransom added, "'How is Miss Tarrant to-day? Is she more calm?' "'Oh, no, she isn't calm at all,' Dr. Prance answered very definitely. "'Do you mean she's excited? Emotional?' "'Well, she doesn't talk. She's perfectly still, and so is Miss Chancellor. They are still as two watchers. They don't speak. But you can hear the silence vibrate.' "'Vibrate?' "'Well, they are very nervous.' Ransom was confident, as I say, yet the effort that he made to extract a good omen from this characterization of the two ladies at the cottage was not altogether successful. He would have liked to ask Dr. Prance whether she didn't think he might count on Verena in the end, 
but he was too shy for this. The subject of his relations with Miss Tarrant never yet having been touched upon between them. And besides, he didn't care to hear himself put a question which was more or less an implication of doubt. So he compromised, with a sort of oblique and general inquiry about Olive. That might draw some light. What do you think of Miss Chancellor? How does she strike you? Dr. Prance reflected a little, with an apparent consciousness that he meant more than he asked. Well, she's losing flesh, she presently replied, and Ransom turned away, not encouraged, and feeling that, no doubt, the little doctress had better go back to her office slate. He did the thing handsomely, remained at Provincetown a week, inhaling the delicious air, smoking innumerable cigars, and lounging among the ancient wharves, where the grass grew thick and the impression of fallen greatness was still stronger than at Marmion. Like his friends, the Bostonians, he was very nervous. There were days when he felt he must rush back to the margin of that mild inlet. The voices of the air whispered to him that in his absence he was being outwitted. Nevertheless, he stayed the time he had determined to stay, quieting himself with the reflection that there was nothing they could do to elude him, unless, perhaps, they should start again for Europe, which they were not likely to do. If Miss Olive tried to hide Verena away in the United States, he would undertake to find her, though he was obliged to confess that a flight to Europe would baffle him, owing to his want of cash for pursuit. Nothing, however, was less probable than that they would cross the Atlantic on the eve of Verena's projected debut at the music hall. Before he went back to Marmion, he wrote to this young lady, to announce his reappearance there, and let her know that he expected she would come out to meet him the morning after. This conveyed the assurance that he intended to take as much of the day as he could get. He had had enough of the system of dragging through all the hours till a mere fraction of time was left before night, and he couldn't wait so long, at any rate, the day after his return. It was the afternoon train that had brought him back from Provincetown, and in the evening he ascertained that the Bostonians had not deserted the field. There were lights in the windows of the house under the elms, and he stood where he had stood that evening with Dr. Prance and listened to the waves of Verena's voice as she rehearsed her lecture. There were no waves this time, no sounds, and no signs of life but the lamps. The place had apparently not ceased to be given over to the conscious silence described by Dr. Prance. Ransom felt that he gave an immense proof of chivalry in not calling upon Verena to grant him an interview on the spot. She had not answered his last note, but the next day she kept the tryst, at the hour he had proposed. He saw her advance along the road, in a white dress, under a big parasol, and again he found himself liking immensely the way she walked. He was dismayed, however, at her face and what it portended. Pale, with red eyes, graver than she had ever been before, she appeared to have spent the period of his absence in violent weeping. Yet that it was not for him she had been crying was proved by the very first words she spoke. "'I only came out to tell you definitely it's impossible. I have thought over everything, taking plenty of time, over and over, and that is my answer. Finally, positively, you must take it. You shall have no other. Basil Ransom gazed, frowning fearfully. And why not, pray? 
"'Because I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't,' she repeated passionately, with her altered, distorted face. "'Damnation!' murmured the young man. He seized her hand, drew it into his arm, forcing her to walk with him along the road. That afternoon Olive Chancellor came out of her house, and wandered for a long time upon the shore. She looked up and down the bay, at the sails that gleamed on the blue water, shifting in the breeze and the light. They were a source of interest to her that they had never been before. It was a day she was destined never to forget. She felt it to be the saddest, the most wounding of her life. Unrest and haunting fear had not possession of her now, as they had held her in New York when Basil Ransom carried off Verena to mark her for his own in the park. But an immeasurable load of misery seemed to sit upon her soul. She ached with the bitterness of her melancholy. She was dumb and cold with despair. She had spent the violence of her terror, the eagerness of her grief, and now she was too weary to struggle with fate. She appeared to herself almost to have accepted it, as she wandered forth in the beautiful afternoon with the knowledge that the ten minutes which Raina had told her she meant to devote to Mr. Ransom that morning had developed suddenly into an embarkation for the day. They had gone out in a boat together, one of the village worthies, from whom small craft were to be hired, had, at Verena's request, sent his little son to Miss Chancellor's cottage with that information. She had not understood whether they had taken the boatman with them. Even when the information came, and it came at a moment of considerable reassurance, Olive's nerves were not ploughed up by it as they had been, for instance, by the other expedition in New York, and she could measure the distance she had traversed since then. It had not driven her away on the instant to pace the shore in frenzy, to challenge every boat that passed, and beg that the young lady who was sailing somewhere in the bay with a dark gentleman with long hair should be entreated immediately to return. On the contrary, after the first quiver of pain inflicted by the news, she had been able to occupy herself, to look after her house, to write her morning's letters, to go into her accounts, which she had had some time on her mind. She had wanted to put off thinking, for she knew to what hideous recognitions that would bring her round again. These were summed up in the fact that Verena was now not to be trusted for an hour. She had sworn to her the night before, with a face like a lacerated angel's, that her choice was made, that their union and their work were more to her than any other life could ever be and that she deeply believed that should she forswear these holy things she would simply waste away, in the end, with remorse and shame. She would see Mr. Ransom just one more, for ten minutes, to utter one or two supreme truths to him, and then they would take up their old, happy, active, fruitful days again, would throw themselves more than ever into their splendid effort. Olive had seen how Verena was moved by Miss Birdseye's death, how at the sight of that unique woman's majestically simple withdrawal from a scene in which she had held every vulgar aspiration, every worldly standard and lure, so cheap, the girl had been touched again with the spirit of their most confident hours, had flamed up with the faith that no narrow personal joy could compare in sweetness with the idea of doing something for those who had always suffered and who waited still. This helped Olive to believe that she might begin to count upon her again, 
conscious as she was at the same time that Verena had been strangely weakened and strained by her odious ordeal. Oh, Olive knew that she loved him, knew what the passion was with which the wretched girl had to struggle, and she did her the justice to believe that her professions were sincere, her effort was real. Harassed and embittered as she was, Olive Chancellor still proposed to herself to be rigidly just, and that is why she pitied Verena now with an unspeakable pity, regarded her as the victim of an atrocious spell, and reserved all her execration and contempt for the author of their common misery. If Verena had stepped into a boat with him half an hour after declaring that she would give him his dismissal in twenty words, that was because he had ways, known to himself and other men, of creating situations without an issue, of forcing her to do things she could do only with sharp repugnance, under the menace of pain that would be sharper still. But all the same, what actually stared her in the face was that Verena was not to be trusted, even after rallying again as passionately as she had done during the days that followed Miss Birdseye's death. Olive would have liked to know the pang of penance that she would have been afraid, in her place, to incur to see the locked door which she would not have managed to force open. This inexpressibly mournful sense that, after all, Verena, in her exquisite delicacy and generosity, was appointed only to show how women had from the beginning of time been the sport of men's selfishness and avidity, this dismal conviction accompanied Olive on her walk, which lasted all the afternoon, and in which she found a kind of tragic relief. She went very far, keeping in the lonely places, unveiling her spirit to the splendid light, which seemed to make a mock of the darkness and bitterness of her spirit. There were little sandy coves, where the rocks were clean, where she made long stations, sinking down in them as if she hoped she should never rise again. It was the first time she had been out since Miss Birdseye's death, except the hour when, with the dozen sympathizers who came from Boston, she stood by the tired old woman's grave. Since then, for three days, she had been writing letters, narrating, describing to those who hadn't come. There were some, she thought, who might have managed to do so, instead of dispatching her pages of diffuse reminiscence and asking her for all particulars in return. Celia Tarrant and his wife had come, obtrusively, as she thought, for they never had had very much intercourse with Miss Birdseye and if it was for Verena's sake, Verena was there to pay every tribute herself. Mrs. Tarrant had evidently hoped Miss Chancellor would ask her to stay on at Marmion, but Olive felt how little she was in a state for such heroics of hospitality. It was precisely in order that she should not have to do this sort of thing that she had given Selah such considerable sums, on two occasions, at a year's interval. If the Tarrants wanted a change of air, they could travel all over the country. Their present means permitted it. They could go to Saratoga or Newport if they liked. Their appearance showed that they could still put their hands into their pockets, or into hers. At least Mrs. Tarrants did. Celia still sported, on a hot day in August, his immemorial waterproof. But his wife rustled over the low tombstones at Marmion, in garments of which— little as she was versed in such inquiries, Olive could see that the cost had been large. Besides, after Dr. Prance had gone, when all was over, 
she felt what a relief it was that Verena and she could be just together, together with the monstrous wedge of a question that had come up between them. That was company enough, great heaven, and she had not got rid of such an intimate as Dr. Prance only to put Mrs. Tarrant in her place. Did Verena's strange aberration on this particular day suggest to Olive that it was no use driving, that the world was all a great trap or trick, of which women were ever the punctual dupes, so that it was the worst of the curse that rested upon them that they must most humiliate those who had most their cause at heart? Did she say to herself that their weakness was not only lamentable but hideous, hideous their predestined subjection to man's larger and grosser insistence? Did she ask herself why she should give up her life to save a sex which, after all, didn't wish to be saved, which rejected the truth even after it had bathed them with its oral light, and they had pretended to be fed and fortified? These are mysteries into which I shall not attempt to enter, speculations with which I have no concern. It is sufficient for us to know that all human effort had never seemed to her so barren and thankless as on that fatal afternoon. Her eyes rested on the boats she saw in the distance, and she wondered if in one of them Verena were floating to her fate. But so far from straining forward to beckon her home, she almost wished that she might glide away forever, that she might never see her again, never undergo the horrible details of a more deliberate separation. Olive lived over, in her miserable musings, her life for the last two years. She knew again how noble and beautiful her scheme had been, but how it had all rested on an illusion of which the very thought made her feel faint and sick. What was before her now was the reality, with the beautiful, indifferent sky pouring down its complacent rays upon it. The reality was simply that Verena had been more to her than she ever was to Verena, and that, with her exquisite natural art, the girl had cared for their cause only because, for the time, no interest, no fascination, was greater. Her talent, the talent which was to achieve such wonders, was nothing to her. It was too easy, she could leave it alone, as she might close her piano, for months. It was only to Olive that it was everything. Verena had submitted, she had responded, she had lent herself to Olive's incitement and exhortation, because she was sympathetic and young and abundant and fanciful, but it had been a kind of hothouse loyalty, the mere contagion of example, and a sentiment springing up from within had easily breathed a chill upon it. Did Olive ask herself whether, for so many months, her companion had been only the most unconscious and most successful of humbugs? Here again I must plead a certain incompetence to give an answer. Positive it is that she spared herself none of the inductions of a reverie that seemed to dry up the mists and ambiguities of life. These hours of backward clearness came to all men and women, once at least, when they read the past in the light of the present, with the reasons of things, like unobserved finger-posts, protruding where they never saw them before. The journey behind them is mapped out and figured, with its false steps, its wrong observations, all its infatuated, deluded geography. They understand, as Olive understood, but it is probable that they rarely suffer, as she suffered. 
the sense of regret for her baffled calculations burned within her like a fire, and the splendor of the vision over which the curtain of mourning was now dropped brought to her eyes slow, still tears, tears that came one by one, neither easing her nerves nor lightening the load of pain. She thought of her innumerable talks with Verena, of the pledges they had exchanged, of their earnest studies, their faithful work, their certain reward, the winter nights under the lamp, when they thrilled with previsions as just and a passion as high as had ever found shelter in a pair of human hearts. The pity of it, the misery of such a fall after such a flight, could express itself only as the poor girl prolonged the vague pauses of her unnoticed ramble in a low, inarticulate murmur of anguish. The afternoon waned, bringing with it the slight chill which, at the summer's end, begins to mark the shortening days. She turned her face homeward, and by this time became conscious that if Verena's companion had not yet brought her back, there might be ground for uneasiness as to what had happened to them. It seemed to her that no sailboat could have put into the town without passing more or less before her eyes and showing her whom it carried. She had seen a dozen, freighted only with the figures of men. An accident was perfectly possible. What could Ransom with his plantation habits know about the management of a sail? And once that danger loomed before her, the signal loveliness of the weather had prevented its striking her before. Olive's imagination hurried, with a bound, to the worst. She saw the boat overturned and drifting out to sea, and, after a week of nameless horror, the body of an unknown young woman, defaced beyond recognition, but with long auburn hair and in a white dress, washed up in some faraway cove. An hour before, her mind had rested with a sort of relief on the idea that Verena should sink forever beneath the horizon, so that their tremendous trouble might never be. But now, with the lateness of the hour, a sharp, immediate anxiety took the place of that intended resignation, and she quickened her step, with a heart that galloped too as she went. Then it was, above all, that she felt how she had understood friendship, and how never again to see the face of the creature she had taken to her soul would be for her as the stroke of blindness. The twilight had become thick by the time she reached Marmion, and paused for an instant in front of her house, over which the elms that stood on the grassy wayside appeared to her to hang a blacker curtain than ever before. There was no candle in any window, and when she pushed in and stood in the hall, listening a moment, her step awakened no answering sound. Her heart failed her. Verena's staying out in a boat from ten o'clock in the morning till nightfall was too unnatural, and she gave a cry as she rushed into the low, dim parlor, darkened on one side at that hour by the wide-armed foliage, and on the other by the veranda and trellis which expressed only a wild personal passion, a desire to take her friend in her arms again on any terms, even the most cruel to herself. The next moment she stared back, with another and a different exclamation, for Verena was in the room, motionless, in a corner, the first place in which she had seated herself on re-entering the house, looking at her with a silent face which seemed strange, unnatural, in the dusk. Olive stopped short, and for a minute the two women remained as they were, gazing at each other in the dimness. 
After that, too, Olive still said nothing. She only went to Verena and sat down beside her. She didn't know what to make of her manner. She had never been like that before. She was unwilling to speak. She seemed crushed and humbled. This was almost the worst, if anything could be worse than what had gone before. And Olive took her hand with an irresistible impulse of compassion and assurance. From the way it lay in her own, she guessed her whole feeling. Saw it was a kind of shame, shame for her weakness, her swift surrender, her insane gyration in the morning. Verena expressed it by no protest and no explanation. She appeared not even to wish to hear the sound of her own voice. Her silence itself was an appeal, an appeal to Olive to ask no questions. She could trust her to inflict no spoken reproach, only to wait till she could lift up her head again. Olive understood, or thought she understood, and the woefulness of it all only seemed the deeper. She would just sit there and hold her hand, that was all she could do. They were beyond each other's help in any other way now. Verena leaned her head back and closed her eyes, and for an hour, as nightfall settled in the room, neither of the young women spoke. Distinctly, it was a kind of shame. After a while the parlour-maid, very casual, in the manner of the servants at Marmion, appeared on the threshold with a lamp, but Olive motioned her frantically away. She wished to keep the darkness. It was a kind of shame. The next morning Basil Ransom rapped loudly with his walking stick on the lintel of Miss Chancellor's house-door, which, as usual on fine days, stood open. There was no need he should wait till the servant had answered his summons, for Olive, who had reason to believe he would come, and who had been lurking in the sitting-room for a purpose of her own, stepped forth into the little hall. "'I am sorry to disturb you. I had the hope that, for a moment, I might see Miss Tarrant.' That was the speech with which, and a measured salutation, he greeted his advancing kinswoman. She faced him an instant, and her strange green eyes caught the light. "'It's impossible. You may believe that when I say it.' "'Why is it impossible?' he asked smiling in spite of an inward displeasure. And as Olive gave him no answer, only gazing at him with a cold audacity which he had not hitherto observed in her, he added a little explanation. It is simply to have seen her before I go, to have said five words to her. I want her to know that I have made up my mind, since yesterday, to leave this place. I shall take the train at noon." It was not to gratify Olive Chancellor that he had determined to go away, or even that he told her this. Yet he was surprised that his words brought no expression of pleasure to her face. "'I don't think it is of much importance whether you go away or not. Miss Tarrant herself has gone away.' "'Miss Tarrant? Gone away?' This announcement was so much at variance with Verena's apparent intentions the night before, that his ejaculation expressed chagrin as well as surprise, and in doing so it gave Olive a momentary advantage. It was the only one she had ever had, and the poor girl may be excused for having enjoyed it, so far as enjoyment was possible to her. Basil Ransom's visible discomfiture was more agreeable to her than anything had been for a long time. I went with her myself to the early train, 
and I saw it leave the station. And Olive kept her eyes unaverted for the satisfaction of seeing how he took it. It must be confessed that he took it rather ill. He had decided it was best he should retire, but Verena's retiring was another matter. And where is she gone? he asked with a frown. I don't think I am obliged to tell you. Of course not. Excuse my asking. It is much better that I should find it out for myself, because if I owed the information to you, I should perhaps feel a certain delicacy as regards profiting by it. Gracious heaven, cried Miss Chancellor, at the idea of Ransom's delicacy. Then she added more deliberately, You will not find out for yourself. You think not? I am sure of it. And her enjoyment of the situation becoming acute, there broke from her lips a shrill, unfamiliar, troubled sound, which performed the office of a laugh, a laugh of triumph, but which, at a distance, might have passed almost as well for a wail of despair. It rang in Ransom's ears as he quickly turned away. End of chapter 39 Recording by Roxana Nazari